Nobody wants to end up in family court, but if you do, you want an honest, experienced family law attorney by your side to help minimize the stress, mental anguish, and legal costs that divorce and custody matters bring. Welcome to In Your Best Interest. Texas divorce attorney and entrepreneur Justin Sizemore of the Sizemore Law Firm, entrepreneur Andrea Jones, freelance writer Mary Maloney and guests share insight on what to expect and how to handle family law matters, the changing landscape of family law, and living the entrepreneur's life. Now, on to the show. The temporary hearing is one of the first and most important steps in the divorce process, and the orders that result usually set the stage for divorce and child custody terms that follow. In today's episode of In Your Best Interest, we'll discuss the steps involved and what to expect during the temporary hearing process, as well as the role divorce attorneys play to help clients achieve the best outcome for their divorce and custody cases. Thanks for joining us for this episode of In Your Best Interest. I'm Mary Maloney, and today, attorney Justin Sizemore, entrepreneur Andrea Jones, and I will dive into the topic of temporary hearings involving divorce and custody cases in Texas. So, Justin, can you start by explaining the general purpose of, te of the temporary hearings, why they're so important, and kind of touch on the timeline involved with those? Well, first of all, I think the biggest misnomer um, that we have is temporary, the word temporary hearings, because, you know, some of these things can last, some of these orders can last six, eight, 10 months, a year, year and a half. Um, so the word temporary in some people's minds uh, might be different if you're thinking that, A, I can go change this really quickly, and B, it, this is only going to be for a very finite, short period of time. So, um Basically, the purpose of a temporary hearing with respect to child custody um, in a visitation and access schedule is to determine, A, who the child's primary residence is, B, some of the rights and duties, i.e. the right to make educational medical decisions for the child. So when you're looking at where to enroll the child in school or any kind of invasive procedures or any type of specific medications that your child may need to be on. Um, some of those are defined um, in the temporary orders, uh, the child support, health insurance uh, provisions, and like I said, the visitation schedule. And obviously right now with the holidays, uh, we get a lot of calls like, what do we do here? This person won't let me have the child. And so you really need to be very forward thinking with respect to A, your work schedule and B, the court schedule, because there's just not a lot you can do right around these crunch times. And these temporary orders are very important. Because like I said, they last a while. So if you wait uh, to go get them or you kind of spring it on the lawyer or yourself last minute, um, you can really find yourself uh, in a situation that you're having to endure something that is, is less than desirable for a longer period of time. With respect to the divorce action or where there's property involved, uh, you're also dealing with use of a business, uh, control of the business assets. Uh, bank accounts, vehicles, use of a residence, uh, you know, personal property and payment of debts and expenses, temporary support, all those things. So like I said, it's it's kind of your roadmap. I always give the analogy to roadmap for where you're going in the divorce action. And the reason it's really important to get them right is A, like I said, the longevity uh, of the temporary orders can can be a long period of time that, you know, you may not uh, have it the way you want it the entire time. Um, but also use of property. 
you know, I see people vacating residences and they don't take what they want. And sometimes you get in a situation where, you know, it takes a while to get your stuff back or somebody sells it or damages it. Uh, so it's really important to uh, think about the temporary orders kind of like a mini divorce trial or a mini child custody trial. Uh, the third point to why the temporary orders are important and the, their purpose is they really establish a good framework going into mediation. Uh, it's a very big leverage piece um, going into mediation because obviously, you know, you may have six or eight more months after the mediation before there's a trial. So if you've got good temporary orders and you've spent the time and resources uh, to get those right, um, in fact, I'll, oftentimes I'll cancel mediation or move mediation if they're not right, uh, remembering that it's not easy to go back to the trough and get new orders. But if you get them right, you go into the mediation and it's much easier to get the deal finalized because someone has already dealt with those experiences throughout the course of the case, specifically when you're dealing with child custody or even with use of residence and things like that, because you've moved out, you've got your stuff where at your new place, you've been there for six and you kind of know what the next steps are for you in your, per, in your life. So a uh, very, very important piece of the puzzle. And, you know, in 2023, I have really started to mandate if we don't have temporary orders uh, entered, we have to have a hearing set. Because what I see a lot of attorneys um, do, and even in my own practice, is they, they're, they're trying to work out a deal. And everybody wants to save money. They don't want to pay lawyers. They want to work out a deal. And so what ends up happening is the can gets kicked around the room, as I say, and you know, no one really has this backdrop of what the framework looks like. And so when it comes to specifics of, uh, well, yeah, I have a client right now, they, they worked out a deal. And as of yesterday, it's six o'clock at night, he's scrambling to try to get his visitation schedule because now she's decided that he can't take the kids to his parents in California. So I'm scrambling, he's scrambling. And, and really there's nothing I can tell him other than be real nice and don't get into an argument so that you can get some kind of agreement for some type of visitation through the holidays. And that's just not a way to um, be in a divorce case or a custody case, period. But that's that's the way people get, right? It's very emotional. And so I like to rip the Band-Aid off. I'd mandate getting a setting, a follow-up setting, and uh, having those temporary orders heard. And that way, if you get over there and you reach an agreement or you reach an agreement on the phone uh, beforehand, fantastic. I highly encourage that. But if you don't, you have the backdrop and it's really important that you get those those right. So Justin, um, before we dive into what happens during temporary hearings, um, can you briefly touch on what you and your clients need to do to prepare beforehand? And we have talked about this on other podcasts, but just kind of a general overview of what you're doing leading up to those temporary hearings. Yeah, the preparation for temporary hearings really uh, involves not only just the uh, direct and cross-examination preparation of the witnesses and or the client. Uh, it's also the organization piece. So um, you've heard me say timelines and my clients hear me say timelines till, they're, till I'm blue in the face. But um, I, I really like to get people thinking in chronological order. Um, if you think in chronological order and events are less significant than what needs to be presented, but they are presented in a format, or at least the client gives you the timeline in a summary chronological timeline format, uh, then what happens is you're in a situation where you can really organize the client's train of thoughts. And that's really important because 
when you do a temporary hearing and you are the petitioner asking your client questions, you can't lead them. You can't say things like, isn't it true on March 15th, you know, he shuts you out of the accounts or isn't it true that uh, they said X, Y, and Z uh, to you on Facebook or text message. Uh, those are leading questions. And if you get any lawyer with half a brain, they will object and you won't be able to ask the question in that format. Um, so you have to ask open-ended questions. And when I ask you things like, what are your concerns with respect to, uh, you know, the person's ability to manage uh, the business accounts? Well, uh, I, you know, I just don't trust them. Well, that's, that's not going to get you where you need to be. And I can't lead you in that regard. So the timeline really helps them um, or my clients be able to organize their train of thoughts so that when I get into my theme-based approach and I figure out what the overarching themes are in the case, uh, and I like to keep it real simple. I don't get more than about two or three. Uh, I like to get the questions uh, that follow those themes that are in each one of those categories. So it's a very organized train of thought. And that way, when we get on the stand, A, the judge understands where we're going with this in a Q&A format, and B, the client doesn't uh, get as nervous having the conversation in front of a third party. So the witness preparation there is is big. Um, and sometimes we do that at the courthouse and clients are like, what should I say? I tell them every time, I don't, I don't need you to have this rote string that I pull out of your back uh, where you just start speaking what I think you should say. It needs to be a very natural flow of conversation so that the, you know, the facial expressions, the body language, all of that's there. Um, and these are the things that you've brought up to my attention in your timeline that I think are very relevant for the temporary hearing. And keep in mind, you got 30 minutes or so to present your evidence. Uh, so you're not going to be going through everything that's ever happened, but, but it really organizes the train of thought. And then with respect to the exhibits, um, I really try to marry those in chronological order as well. So, uh, if you've got text messages or you've got pictures or bank accounts or a house that, uh, you know, you purchased and uh, you're arguing some separate property claims. I really try to try to get those all in line uh, in the inventory and with the backup documents and the timeline before the hearings if we can. But keep in mind, uh, you know, we've got two weeks oftentimes because the temporary restraining order that gets you to the party, if you will, only lasts for 14 days unless you extend it. Um, and those TROs keep everybody playing nice while the case is pending. So, uh, really important to be way before you file, if you can, getting some of this stuff ready and doing a consult well in advance of the filing. I tell clients all the time, you can hire me today, but this is when we need this to happen. If you need this to happen sooner, we're going to have to shortchange some of these items. And and I think that's really important to let the clients know up front because you know they expect when they hire our firepower for us to really get after it and, and have all of our ducks in a row. And, you know, we've got a support staff that has lot that have lives as well. They can't just jump when you say jump and have everything ready at the 11th hour. I had a client last week that legitimately brought us the paperwork at for a one o'clock hearing at nine o'clock in the morning. We sent two or three emails, two or three phone calls, no response. And then he shows up and shows up right at the time of the hearing, even though we told him to meet at the office 30 minutes early and I know people are busy, but you've got to take pride in these cases and you've got to remember that you're paying a lot of money for these services. Use them and make sure that the staff uh, has ample time to go through these questions with you and, and really organize train of thought. 
a lot of what I do in the preparation is organizing the client's train of thought. And so that there's not 8 million emails and 8 million calls that charge a bunch of money. So that's the preliminary preparation. So when you actually get to the courthouse or Zoom meeting, wherever your temporary hearing is being held, how does that process play out? For example, who goes first, what evidence is typically produced and so on? Well, specifically now with respect to what happens at the courthouse, you know, a lot of the a lot of the concerns for the client is they haven't physically met with the attorney. Uh, we do a lot of things via Zoom now. We do a lot of phone preparation um, and getting emails and all that. And so I understand how nerve wracking it can be for a client uh, to walk into a courthouse and, you know, they're just they're just physically laying eyes on you the first time other than, you know, a Zoom meeting or whatever. But um, I tell clients the same analogy and and you really can't trust this until you see uh, myself and our attorneys in action. Right. You, you, I can tell you this, but until you see it, you don't know. It's the same thing as the surgeon that did my wife's surgery, you know, on her throat. He walks in. I've never met him. He literally says two words. He cuts her open. She's perfect. He walks out the door 30 minutes later and the surgery's over and it it's flawless. Right. And that's very challenging for people to um, truly understand professionalism um, and that a client or an attorney can get the client's information uh, together in a format when they don't have a lot of communication. But I'm very particular on how I do my cases. I'm very specific as to what the arguments are. And I really don't like to get too far off course. Um, unfortunately, in the world of emotion in a divorce or child custody case, you as the client have these things that you really want me to say. And, you know, my response is always, well, if it's if it's necessary, you know, to to further the position for that specific hearing or whichever stage we're at the case, then we'll bring it up. But oftentimes, you know, you want to just kind of go out in left field and and get a pound of flesh, talk about the adultery, talk about the the woman that hasn't been around the kids or whatever the case may be. And I understand the pain point that's there. I'm not being, uh, you know, aloof to that whatsoever, but I would say that uh, you know, there's not a time and a place for that at a temporary hearing. They're not, you know, unless the child is around uh, and the child's involved, that's an example, just one of them, of when I would not be bringing those issues up. So if that is the absolute end-all be-all for the client and they say, Justin, you've got to talk about this, I, I try to lead them in a direction of what the focus of that hearing is. Uh, when we get to the courthouse, we're sitting in a room. you got two or three hours there. Uh, Mary, and you know, you got you got lawyers running around, judges listening to 18 different people's hearings. Uh, some of the lawyers come in prepared, some of the lawyers are scrambling, some of the lawyers have support staff, some of them don't. Um, and you just don't know what you're getting until you get over there. And it seems really stressful for the client, but that's why I take them aside, I put them in a room. I let them know all the facts that we know and what we're going to talk about. And then I go try to work a deal out with opposing counsel if they haven't returned our phone calls or emails beforehand. Uh, and then if we need a hearing, I go tell the judge, hey, you know, we've, we're going to talk for about an hour or so. Uh, I'd like to get on the on the docket, just as, I mean, get on the schedule of the docket in case we reach an impasse uh, and we need your help and we're going to need X number of minutes per side. And it's really important that you don't go in there and say, hey, I needed two hours if you need 30 minutes because you're not going to be in line. Uh, but if you need two hours, you may consider needing a special setting and you may try to get some deals worked out or get some injunctions in place and some of the Band-Aids put on 
this roadmap, if you will. Um, and, and it's a great place to do it because everybody's at the drawing board, everybody's at the table, and you've got all the negotiations uh, working as a result. So, so when you get your client gets to the courthouse, so I mean, you're hopefully you can try to figure things out or negotiate things for those temporary orders without necessarily going in front of the judge. Is that what you're saying? That you can kind of try to work out a deal. But if you can't, then you try to get on that judge's docket to go in front of the judge. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think the big thing there to remember is that, you know, you you can't be too loose with these orders. You need to really think about the pain points, where the exchange is, where the where the money is going to be, uh, who's going to who's going to be able to have signatory power on these checks, all these things. So you know, it takes some time to do that, but I, I really have to extract that information from clients oftentimes. And, you know, if you go into court, uh, the, 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 the court, I always say they, you know, they, they come in with a hatchet, not a scalpel, right? So they're not going to fine tune the orders the way that uh, a party may think. And so getting there and letting the other party know what, some of the evidence that we have and what we're going to show and really getting specific on some of these issues are, are very important for temporary orders. Um, and then if we, if we reach an impasse, um, I'm big on making sure there's a tiebreaker, right? I don't like leaving orders, uh, you know, as, as agreed and all that other stuff, because when parties get frustrated with each other, I get 50 phone calls and I try to eliminate phone calls so that I can go in there and perform the surgery. And if I do it right, then I do the surgery once. So, um, so another thing that occurs in temporary hearings are cross-examinations of the parties and potential witnesses um, to the particular case. Can you explain how that cross-examination works in the temporary hearing setting? So cross-examination is absolutely, in my opinion, the biggest art of an attorney. Um, it's I, I think what most people would say, and I'm not boasting when I say this, but when they ask about why is what is Mr. Sizemore's skill set that is my skill set. I am not as good at direct examination. Um, I really like cross-examination because I feel like you really have to listen. Um, and if you know the direction of where the client is going or trying to take you, and you know that's not on the script of what your client has told you, uh, you can really expose people in ways that uh, they should be exposed. And you know, people always tell me, well, they're misrepresenting something in court or they're lying. It's perjury. I'm like, I know, uh, but you got to pull that out and, you know, the jails are full and are the courts going to throw someone in jail for perjury? Sometimes if it's ex egregious and extreme, but the little white lies that come out, you know, it, it becomes a, he said, she said, so cross-examination is where you expose, um, the, the witness, you lead them down a path by opening a door, uh, in very limited circumstances, but cause you just don't ever want to ask open-ended questions. Uh, but you know, if you've got the, if you've got the person that just really can't make sense of what they're saying, I sometimes will set them up for an open-ended question. You know, like the, the, the counselor, for example, gets on the stand and says, well, if the child uh, goes over to dad's house for an expanded standard period, which is Thursday to Monday on the first, third and fifth and Thursday overnights on the second and fourth, as opposed to a standard, uh, you know, that child is going to be uh, detrimentally harmed uh, to their emotional health, safety, and welfare. And I'm like, okay, so if we take away that Thursday, you're saying that Thursday overnight is going to detrimentally harm the child. Yes. Now I can say, all right, please explain, right? 
well, the child, you know, has separation anxiety on Thursdays. I mean, there's just no way you can make that make sense unless there's a school issue or something, which I already know whether that counselor knows or doesn't know anything about. So you can sometimes expose people with open-ended questions, but most of the time it is leading them down a path and really pushing them in a direction that they just don't want to answer the question. They just don't want to, because the answer is obvious. You've called someone terrible names. You've you know, sent terrible text messages, pictures, done something, and I know it. And oftentimes I will lead up to it and I'll start waving stuff around and doing my little theatrics in the courtroom because I just think that's the fun part of the job. But uh, but cross is, cross is where the art is. So, you know, in regard to witnesses too, you mentioned that you could you would question counselors. Uh, what other type of witnesses would appear potentially in a temporary hearing case or phase? Yeah, I, I really do try to limit, Mary, because of the time constraints on temporary orders, I really do try to limit the number of witnesses. Um, I'm not a big fan of bolstering witnesses, your mama and your cousin that tell everybody how great you are. I don't think that it's very impactful. Um, you know, it, it is helpful in a custody case with infants where you have, you know, a mom or a grandma or whatever that's seen you physically change diapers. Cause I have clients, you know, that come in and the, you know, the, the mom sometimes, and, and rightfully so, she may not have seen you do it. Uh, and she thinks that the infant's going to die if, if the child goes over to dad's house because he doesn't know how to bottle feed or, or give a diaper. I, I, I just tried a case last week where the mom, Luckily, we had uh, the hearing in front of the district judge who made a very good decision and gave the dad some time with his baby, which he definitely should have if you've got somebody that that can care for the child. Um, but then she goes and files for protective order. She fires her lawyer after the judge made the rendition and all this stuff. So, um, you know, I think it's really important um, to focus the energy uh, in those settings on exactly what it is that the clients need what they can do and basically how they're going to execute it. So. So that kind of takes us to toward the end phase of those temporary hearings. So um, can you talk a little more about the negotiations that go into the, the to essentially an effective temporary hearing and also explain what the closing and ancillary documents are pertaining to that particular event? Yeah, and the closing documents on a temporary hearing are really important because the temporary orders themselves, you know, we have, Andrea helps me all the time with these timelines and procedural events of when things need to occur so that my staff and team execute things timely. What happens in temporary orders with respect to the ancillary documents um, is that it, usually the petitioner is tasked with drafting, okay? I, at any st step of the game, always try to take control of that process because I know we draft correctly. Number one, it's not to say that other attorneys don't do it right. It's just, you know, when I, when I'm in control of it, I know that a, I don't leave anything out. I make sure that all of the language is there benefiting or, or to the detriment of both sides. Um, and you know, you're not playing this truffle shuffle of, well, the temporary orders were supposed to be prepared and ordered by the court, uh, two weeks after the temporary hearing, but I haven't heard anything from opposing counsel in a month. Well, keep in mind, you've got an associate judge's report that's one page long, right? It doesn't have all the 35 pages of details in there. And so, you know, making sure that you're in control of not only what's in the temporary orders and including all the information that the judge concluded or that you agreed to, but also when you get them and what communications uh, need to happen next. So getting those temporary orders entered, if they don't give us the response, we can prepare a motion to enter with the court or a 10-day letter in some courts. 
uh, where the courts will just enter it absent objections uh, in 10 days. Um, you know, that's that's one of the ancillary documents. The other thing is if you're going to be selling a house or if you're going to be uh, transferring a motor vehicle or bills, um, you know, that's the biggie. Well, all the bills are in his name. I don't know how to transfer these. Uh, you know, getting that who, what, when, and where, and why to each of those orders and exchange of property and or children are very important uh, to think about. And, you know, if you leave the arena and you don't have those things ironed out, at least to a simple degree, we're going to exchange all property awarded here on blank date at blank time, which is 101 stuff. I have one attorney tell me the last week, well, you didn't put a time in there to uh, and, and, and that my client had to share the photos that she took of, uh, administering the medication. And I'm like, please come into court and argue that please come into court. And when the court order says you're to take photographs because you didn't, your client didn't administer the medication that you're just going to keep them in the vault, right. Of your, of your office, please come and tell the court that, but the reality is they can get away with that. And so you got to really, uh, make sure that you have the documents to transfer the property. You have the communications, the orders in place, because it's all about enforceability. And if you don't have orders in place and you don't get them signed by a court and you operate under Rule 11 agreements and all these willy-nilly things that people can revoke. And in the civil world, it's a very serious thing if you revoke a Rule 11 agreement or an agreement between the parties. In the family courts, people do it so often that it's kind of like, well, they just didn't want to do that today. And it's ridiculous, but that's the way it is. And so those are the closing documents you need. So Andrea, I'd love to hear from you being that you've been through, um, you know, an extended divorce and custody process um, with Justin as your attorney, um, and obviously through temporary hearings. Can you share from your perspective, um, any lessons learned through that process, any do's and don'ts? Sure. So I think it starts with finding the right attorney. We said this over and over interview your attorney and interview a few so that you have a good feel. And and now that you heard what the process should look like and all the other stuff, you need to get a feel that your attorney has your back and knows what he's doing, right? Not just in general, we're going to go to court, but what are the steps? So I think that's the first thing, interview your attorney. And then you have to trust the process. And like Justin said, we're trying to make it easier in the firm now to to show clients what the process looks like, because it is overwhelming. If you never went through divorce, you don't understand all those things and sometimes don't even understand all those words. When What is the rendition? Like Terms like that, If you unless you went to law school, you have no idea what that means. So trust the process. Find the attorney that you like, that you feel good with. Trust the process. So I think the most important thing, Justin mentioned that is be clear on what you want because temporary orders, as he said, can last for a long time. In our case, they lasted, I think, two years, right? Because of the, the process dragged on. And and we it, it's easier said than done, but focus on the big things and take the emotions out. Like I was the same way. Oh, can you bring this up in court? And can you bring that up in court? No. Focus on who has the kids, who has visitation, and what is important to you. All those things are the most important things. And then, because again, it take it takes a while. And then another thing that's super, super important for your attorney to be prepared, you got to get all that stuff to the attorney. And I was totally overwhelmed. I mean, like all the stuff that they wanted from me. And when you go through divorce and you already are emotionally in a bad space, then somebody giving you this long list and timeline and all the stuff. I mean, you just want to put your hand in the sand and just don't want to hear about it. 
But as painful as it is and as frustrating as it is and as much time as it takes, it is so, so important to get that stuff to your attorney and then organized because the only person that knows your life is you. I mean, an attorney comes from outside in. If you give them a shoebox of documents, first of all, it's going to cost you a lot of money for them to organize it. And second of all, they don't understand all the stuff that's in there. So just make sure you you help them organize um, what you want, even if it's overwhelming. Again, I said this before, try to keep the emotions out. Keep, try to focus on the most important things. And then and then, if if your attorney doesn't give you information after the hearing, ask for a summary. Because again, unless you've been through it, there's a lot of stuff in there. You might not understand what that all means. Visitation can be um, overwhelming. What does that mean on Thursday? And what does it mean on vacations, on holidays and stuff? If you don't understand, just ask the question, what does that mean? What happens in this situation? What happens if school is out early? All those things that you don't get yourself in trouble and um, not handing the kids over when you should or not getting the kids when you want. So just be in communication to understand what they're giving you. I think that's the biggest takeaways I had. So in closing for, you know, for both of you, any other closing thoughts on the temporary hearings and the process, you know, um, any, Justin, maybe any common questions that clients have for you when they're approaching it or just anything that you want to say as we wrap up today? Yeah. One of the, one of the other things that I forgot to mention too, is, you know, some of the courts have these records of support and wage withholding orders. You talked about closing documents, uh, make sure that you get those done at the time, uh, you're at court because, uh, you know, the child support offices, um, they're all humans too, right? And they get a bunch of documents thrown on their desk and different courts have different procedures. Uh, so it's very important to know, all right, when am I going to get paid child support or spousal support? Or how is the insurance card going to get transferred over? Uh, make sure that those questions are sealed up and buttoned up at the end. Uh, and you may still have some follow-up questions, we do a follow-up interview in our firm, um, you know, nine times out of 10 uh, and, and with a bullet pointed list of, hey, this is in summation, what's going to happen next, like setting up our family wizard. How do you do that? Uh, drug test. Where do you go? Uh, child support. Well, uh, social study. Who do I talk to? So it's a bullet point list because the orders are 35 pages. I don't want to sit there with you for two hours and go through all 35 pages of every sentence. Some clients want that. And, and I, I tell them, look, I can assure you when I draft this stuff, I want you to understand it all, but I want you to understand it in this format, because just like Andrea talked about, it can be very overwhelming. And my job and our firm's job is to eliminate some of the confusion. And we do that with bullet pointed short lists. That's why I cut down timelines. That's why I cut down inventories and I get everything down into a concise manner to present to a court. Sounds great. Andrea, any closing words on your part? No, just trust the process. It's overwhelming and it's, and ask the questions if you don't understand it. All right. Well, great. Well, if you'd like to get in touch with the Sizemore Law Firm, you can call 817-336-4444 or visit lawyerdfw.com. We also invite you to follow the podcast and share it with friends who might find it helpful. Thanks again for listening and have a great day. Thank you for listening to In Your Best Interest with Texas divorce attorney and entrepreneur, Justin Sizemore. The content presented here is provided for information only and should not be construed as legal, tax, or financial advice. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available.